Welcome to the Indie Vets Happy Hour. I am Dr. Andrew Heller, and I have with me today my co-host as usual, Dr. Marissa Bernetti. And we actually have a couple of special guests. And Marissa, why don't you introduce them? Thank you, Andrew. I'm Dr. Brunetti. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at IndieVets. And with us today are two amazing members of my clinical leadership team. Here at IndieVets, we actually believe that vets should supervise other vets. And so we have area medical directors for each of our largest areas. And luckily, we're joined by two of the three today. And we would have been joined by the third, but she is busy practicing for one of her doctors. So um, I think what's important about our clinical leadership team is we all still practice as general small animal practitioners. And so we know what our team members are going through. We may not practice as much as they do, but we are in the trenches. That's why Kelly isn't here. But today we have Dr. Chandra Schofield, who is our area medical director for Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, and Dr. Amy Lloyd, who is our greater Philadelphia area medical director, actually our largest area and where we originally started. So I'll start with Dr. Lloyd first, but Dr. Lloyd, will you give us a little bit of background um, on your veterinary career? Um, I graduated from University of Pennsylvania in 1998, and I went on to spend eight years in regular general practice with two different practices. And then for 14 years, I owned my own mobile clinic, which was a purpose-built vehicle. Um, I was used to being, being able to do everything, and I did everything in there. I did surgery. I did x-ray. I did some ultrasounds, easy ultrasounds, lab work, everything. But um, we brought it to people's homes. So it was a very interesting market. Uh, a lot of anxious people, anxious animals, old animals, old people, chronic problems. Um, and then from there, I was just getting really tired of being solo. And I wanted the company of other veterinarians. I wanted a, a more collaborative environment. And um, I joined IndieVets in April of 2020. And we are very happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. All right, Dr. Schofield. So I graduated from Penn in 2011. After I graduated, I did a rotating internship at Southpaw's Emergency Veterinary Referral in Fairfax, and then did ER relief for a year at various ER centers in Virginia. And then after that, I did a GP at a family-owned practice for about six years, and, and then I joined IndieVets. That's great. Awesome. And again, very, very happy to have you. <laughs> and I am very happy to be here as well. So um, thank you for coming on. The goal for this episode is to talk about some off-label uses of medications. The reason I thought of this was because, you know, in vet school, we really learned so much detail about how to diagnose disease states. Um, we went into so much detail about those things. And when it got to treatments, I remember feeling very uneasy and feeling like, wow, they just told me to treat with antibiotics, you know, a broad spectrum, or they said to treat with some kind of steroid. You know, it was just like very broad. They didn't really ever talk about brand names. And I remember getting out of vet school and feeling like, wow, I really don't know how to treat things. Um, I don't know how to treat them in terms of duration and specifically. So, you know, I thought it was a really steep learning curve. Um, and I think most veterinarians learn pretty quickly the basics, but there's certainly a lot of medications, a lot of drugs out there that are off-label use. And most of us don't even, even realize that they're off-label use, especially in cats, right? So I wanted to open a conversation here and maybe see if we can help the audience, you know, our other indie vets or even other veterinarians listening, maybe give them some tips and tricks of medications that we use 
And, you know, I think we have a, a really unique vantage point that we work in so many different practices. So we really get to see our other people using this. And sometimes we actually learn new things from the doctors at those practices. So that was my goal. I don't know if you guys had any, any other ideas uh, about that, but hopefully we can start there. I think that's an excellent point, Andrew. And one of the first things we'll go over is my favorite animal, the cat. And I think Amy <laughs> probably joins me in that, but that so few things are actually labeled for cats. And so we'll list a couple things that are actually labeled for cats. But what we know is that we, we just extrapolate out from dogs and use them in cats. And we've been pretty successful in that. So I think a lot of what we'll talk about today are cats as well as other uses for medications in dogs. I thought we'd start with a little background on extra label drug use. I didn't realize this. I'm sure I learned this in vet school, but had forgotten it. So I looked it up again. And the Animal Medical Drug Use Clarification Act, AMDUCA, of 1994 actually made it legal to use FDA-approved drugs extra label in animals. So I guess before that, it was illegal. I think people probably did it, but technically it was not, you know, it was not allowed. And what this allows us to do is, you know, if there are drugs that are labeled specifically for a disease state, you're supposed to use those first, unless there's a financial reason not to, you know, for the client. But, you know, if that, if that labeled drug is not working as well as you planned or as well as you hoped, you do have the ability to use other medications as long as you have a valid patient-client relationship. You know, for instance, I remember for financial reasons, for big dogs, and I had to put them on Clavamox, it was well over $100 for a course sometimes. And I used to script them out Augmentin because it just was too expensive to give them Clavamox. And I know there's some differences, but it was good enough. And, you know, that was totally legal to do. I always felt a little bit weird about it because I know the clavulonic acid components are slightly different, but it never really caused me a problem and it usually worked. So let's jump into cats. Marissa, what are some of the some of the actual labeled drugs for cats that you know of? I remember learning about Amduca a lot in vet school because you're right. It's either you can use a human drug for animals, but you can also use a dog labeled drug in cats as long as you are using it properly and conservatively. So I think there's, there's two things yeah. to clarify there. But unfortunately, my favorite animal is is relegated to the, the back, right? So they usually do research on dogs and then it costs so much more money to actually label something for a cat. And so there really is only very few actual medications labeled for cats. So I'll just, I'll say a couple of ones that I remember and then, you know, Amy or, or Chandra or Andrew like pop in if, if this list is not exhaustive. But I think our, the most common one that we see everywhere is Convenia, right? It's, it's however only labeled for skin infections in cats, but we basically now use it for anything in cats that, you know, people can't medicate. So we use convenient in cats. Orbax is labeled for cats. So it's Orbifloxacin. Onsior, which is only labeled for three days in cats, but I think a lot of us use it longer term. I'm actually <laughs> treating my brother's cat who has terminal cancer with Onsior every day. And he's been on that and it's made him extremely comfortable. He's been on it for 60 plus days now and still eating, no vomiting. Um, he's been doing great on it. So what I, can I just interrupt there? What I was going to say yeah. is I looked, I looked up Onsior long-term use and actually in other countries, it is labeled for long-term use. Like I believe in Canada, it's labeled for long-term use. Yeah. Sometimes you find other countries have certain labeling and we don't. And so it almost like makes it, you know, a no brainer to, to just follow theirs if they've already put in the research to prove that it works. Yeah, it definitely makes me feel better, like looking at the UK and Australia, because they've used all these things before they even came to us. 
So yeah, so Ontior, um, luckily a couple of years ago, they came out with Itrafungal, which is liquid itraconazole for those cats with ringworm, especially Trefoderm, Revolution, Revolution Plus, Advantage Multi is labeled in cats. Is there anything that I missed, guys, that you can think is, is actually labeled in cats? Miratas? Miratas, oh. that's a good one. Miratas is a great one. So yeah. long-term transdermal. Uh, mirtazapine, since we were using it so much and everyone was quartering those stupid little 15 milligram tabs and shoving them down cat's throat. Yeah, that's a great one. That sort of brings us to a few things like Serenia, I always thought was labeled for dogs and cats because I use it in cats so often, but it really says right on the label only for dogs. (laughs) Um, The injectable, the injectable, I think is labeled for both, but the oral is only labeled for dogs. There you go. There you go. So, you know, there are a lot of other uses for Serenia now that I know people are using. And I know we've kind of discussed some of these in the past, but I know people use Serenia now for chronic rhinitis in cats. I've even seen it being used as an antitussive, you know, because Serenia does have, you know, this NK1 antagonist property, and that reduces the substance P, which is an inflammatory mediator. And so pretty much any inflammation, it can theoretically treat. Right, Marissa? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Amy, I I know you use Serenia for a number of different things. So what else have you used it in? Well, actually, I've used it in my own cat with chronic rhinitis. So that's been like my biggest newer use of it um, because I've had personal experience with it and it did help him. And I've used it in other cats, but I sort of used it in him first. I started using it in him several years ago when people first started using it. And he is like eight now and he's had he's had rhinitis his whole entire life. And so he cycles through things. Sometimes something works for a while and then it doesn't work anymore. And then I go back to it and it works again. And and are you using it orally in him or are you making the the solution and putting it intranasally no i'm using it orally okay okay yeah i use it systemically for him and that's what i've done with other cats and it's sort of i sort of titrate the dose because nobody really knows but for a while i was giving it to him every other day and that seemed to be a really good balance and then he sort of fell off the wagon i've used fortiflora in him as just like a general immune system helper that has helped him also with the rhinitis which is totally weird but it does work in some cats i know we're not talking about nutraceuticals but just of interest that it did help him you can talk about nutraceuticals too (laughs) yeah i mean people think people think like probiotics is just for the gut but no way i think that's a really good point yeah. And there is a solution. So has anyone have experience making up the solution and using it intranasally? Chandra, do you remember the the dose? Yeah, I actually just prescribed two bottles of it last night. Oh. Um, so I do half a cc of Serenia injectable to four and a half cc's of saline. So five mLs total and then one drop each nostril twice a day. Wow, that's a really great ELDU. <laughs> Extra Extra label, drug label. Oh my God, you're a dork. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love it. You know, one other thing um, is that Serenia, we use it for um, obviously anti-emetic properties. And that's how I learned it in vet schools, right? It's an anti-emetic, but it can also just be used for abdominal pain, pancreatitis. Again, for the same, for the same reasons it works for inflammation in general. Um, I think a lot of surgeons are are incorporating it into their pre-op protocols now just to help with, you know, anti-nausea from the opioids, but also for the substance P anti-inflammatory effects. That's That's what I was going to say. I know Andrew knows the mechanism of action. So Andrew, why don't you tell us the mechanism of action of 
Meropitant. Oh, didn't I say it before? It's an NK1 antagonist, which reduces substance P, also known as another inflammatory mediator. So it's one of those things you learn in vet school and you never forget. I just like to think of it as also an anti-inflammatory. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that hasn't been shown to crush your kidneys. <laughs> so, so also, if we're talking about cats, I know we mentioned there aren't really any ear meds labeled for cats other than Tresiderm, right? Yeah. Yeah, depending. Sometimes I'll use Claro, half a tube each year. Same. I've definitely used Claro in cats with great success because, mm-hmm. I mean, how often are people actually able to medicate their cat's ears really well? You know, like actually get drops in there. I think it's super hard. And a, yeah. a little tip I picked up from a dermatologist was put it in a tuberculin syringe because the nozzle of the Claro tube will actually seal the ear canal shut. So while you're pushing the fluid in, you're building up pressure in the ear and it can be painful. So put it in a tuberculin syringe to administer. I I was literally going to say the same thing. I was going to say, I draw mine up and then I put a catheter tip on it without the needle, obviously. And I use the catheter tip to to do it. Because, yeah, I I didn't know the whole feeling of the ear canal, but that makes sense. I just thought the the application tube was too large. I'm like, why do they need to have it so big? They don't. It's like a pure liquid. So that's great. I didn't even know that. So um, you guys also mentioned treating rhinitis with neopolydex drops, right? Now, who here does that? Who here used to do that? (laughs) So you used to do that in dogs. dogs. Oh, yeah. Sorry. In dogs, yes, I would do it. (laughs) And so why would you not use it in cats? I'm older than all you guys, so I've been practicing a long time. And we used to always use neopolydex in cats. In fact, we would use it for eyes. And way back, I remember having a few ulcer cases where I'd be using um, genomycin eye drops, which now hardly anyone uses anymore. But that's that was our go-to. That was what we had. Then when the cat would inevitably develop scarring on eye or develop the corneal sequestrum, then we would start to use steroids. But back then we didn't have really the steroid specific drops or they were too expensive. So we would go to Neopolydex at that point and help take the inflammation down from the eye and help the scarring to decrease so the cats could see better. And I did this in a number of cats in my first few years of practice and nothing bad happened. And then I had this one cat and developed a severe allergic reaction to the neomycin. And then when I talked to the ophthalmologist back then, Dr. Gross, who was at Metropolitan Mm -hmm. and he was teaching at Penn when I was at Penn. I spoke with him and he's like, yeah, you can't use this in cats anymore. He's like, I used to use it too, but some cats have this horrible reaction to it. And I felt so bad that I had created this monster of an eye in this cat and it did resolve. And I did what Dr. Gross told me to do and everything got better, but it made me feel awful. And since then I have never used anything with neomycin in a cat's eye. And I actually get nervous with Trezoderm because even though it's labeled for cats, it has neomycin in it. And so I always warn people and I warn people with Trezoderm anyway, or with any ear medication that if their ears looking red or worse, or it's bothering them more that it should, it should improve that it shouldn't look worse. And so that's like always my warning. So, and we used to use Neopolydex regularly and cats noses too. I sort of stopped even before I knew about that because I found it so irritating to them that I found that the stress to them for me didn't equate to really good benefits. So if I felt I really needed a steroid, I would use tiny doses of systemic instead. That's just what worked for me because the cats would just get so stressed out. Is Trezoderm labeled for ear mites as well? 
That's yeah. a good question because people use it for ear mites, but I don't really understand. I've never understood why it would actually work. And I, at a practice that I worked at years ago, we used to mix ivermectin with the Trezoderm. And then, of course, it would actually work. Hmm. Um, but that's as off-label as it gets. We'd just be stuffing ivermectin into the Trezoderm <laughs> bottle. At a, I don't remember what how much we would put in there. And off they would go. And it did work. So it yeah. has thiabendazole in it, which is active apparently against yeast and mites. Huh. Guys, I didn't just know—I just didn't know that in my brain. I looked it up. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Backtracking a little bit, that cats also have allergic reactions to the polymyxin B. So neopoly yeah. is a double a double bad, and teramycin actually has polymyxin B in it. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that either. Huh. It says it in little tiny, little tiny letters underneath the main ingredient, which I think is uh, oxytet. Yeah, so it's oxytetracycline with polymyxin B in like little tiny <laughs> letters. <laughs> so erythromycin would be your oint eye ointment of choice for cats, right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Or like tobramycin drops are okay. Mm -hmm. I use them, right? Okay. Yeah. So, Chandra, I know you still use neopolydex drops in dog noses, though. So, what is your? How do you use that? I stick with my one drop each nostril twice a day. Okay. <laughs> That's my go-to for nose drops. And I sort of tell people it's like doggy flonase. You know, you're just getting a little local um, anti-inflammatory effects for those nasal passages and, and the antibiotics help with, you know, any yeah. secondary infection there. That's a good one. You know, we were talking about mites, um, ear mites, but, you know, other mites like Demodex and Sarcoptes, we used to use, you know, ivermectin. Now the isoxazoline group you know, I know that's also extra label, but we now don't really even have to worry about mites if people are using those things, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of an obvious one, but I thought I'd at least mention it. Yeah, I've so gotten out of the habit of doing skin scrapes now because I feel like even if I don't find anything, I'm going to put them on an isozalazine anyway. Yep. So. And so would a dermatologist. So I agree. And I've, I've actually seen it successfully treat scabies and demodex. So anecdotally, it's worked. Right. for me even the reps will tell they'll even say it now even though it's not on the label they'll still tell you that so oh yeah it's getting to the point where it's so widely accepted mm -hmm. yeah and um, it's good that brevecto oh we forgot brevecto is labeled in cats topically oh yeah. So, oh yeah and obviously i'm really happy to have a mite treatment for them now although revolution, revolution. technically yeah revolution, revolution. is also and advantage multi yeah. yeah i like advantage multi me so too. yeah i guess I guess cats do have like a good labeling for ectoparasite control. So they have Frontline, Advantage Multi, Revolution, Revolution Plus, Brevecto, and then all like the generic Frontlines and stuff that I can't remember now. So there are a couple of really newer drugs, I should say, that we've been using in dogs, definitely labeled in dogs like Apoquel and Entice that people are starting to use in cats as well. How about you guys? Have you been using Apoquel or Entice in cats? Apoquel. And, and has your dose been different than what you use for dogs? Yeah, and like I had read a whole bunch before I used it. The first cat I used it in was a cat that had really horrible um, eosinophilic granuloma. His whole entire head, I have pictures of him. He, he just was horrible. And the owner was actually thinking about euthanizing him because he was so non-responsive to everything. And he was a diabetic. So it it was like the worst case ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I was trying all these different things. We tried cyclosporin. We did all these things with this cat and nothing was working. And she'd send me these pictures and it was terrible. And she'd go away and the pets are wouldn't give the meds right. And the cat would just blow up and like 
a day. And so finally I was like, well, let's try this. And it, it was like when there was like N of one cats that um, they talked about. And I was like, well, it's worth a shot. So I started that cat off on the twice a day daily dosing that you start a dog off on. But what was different was I could never get the cat off that dosing and like i said it was really early on in this so people didn't know but the owner was so close to putting him to sleep that i just decided i said well we have to leave him on this dose because it's working and um she would do follow-up blood work and she was willing to take the risk because otherwise the alternative was worse and so then now it's coming out you know that you have to use these higher doses and the other cats that i've had on it subsequently i just tell people that we're gonna titrate the dose to the lowest that works but i actually start out higher than i did with that cat based on the new knowledge. So what I saw on VIN was people were using 0.6 mg per kg twice a day. Is that yeah. what you get your high dose? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I also heard like one to two mg per kg total a day. So like people are even using higher doses. That's a great story though. Yeah. And you also mentioned cyclosporin. We forgot to mention atopica for cats. Isn't that labeled for cats? It is. It is. Oh yeah, it is. So there's another one for cats. Yay, cats. Yay. cats. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week when we talk about chinchillas. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, Chandra, you're on that one, not me. <laughs> so for entice, has anybody tried using that? I know that's only labeled for dogs. I mean, now that they have Mirtaz, is that working well? Have you guys seen that working well? Yeah, for the most part. I would totally use Entice, I think, in cats. I think if Mertaz didn't work, I would I would definitely use... I've seen people use Entice in cats. I have personally not done it. Yeah, and the dosing that I saw there on Ben was two mgs per kg once a day. And then there were people who were talking about potential hypotension and bradycardia in cats, but in the study they did with Entice on cats, they did not even mention that as a side effect. So I'd say that's more like hearsay. It's more anecdotal. Yeah, well... Um, I know, Andrew, you want to talk about um, one of your favorite drugs that you always bring up. I know where you're going with this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the reason that they figured out sildenafil, I mean, they really made it for pulmonary hypertension, right? But, like, you always want to talk about sildenafil and the other uses for it in animals. Right, right. Well, it is labeled for dogs for pulmonary hypertension, but I I listened to a CE on um, megasophagus, and they're using it for dogs with megasophagus because it it relaxes the smooth muscle and allows the food to enter into the stomach. So many people will put their dogs on um, promotility drugs, and that tends to close the the upper gastric sphincter, and then the food just sits there and it doesn't go in. Mm. And so they said the sildenafil will actually relax that and the food will go in. And so gastric filling time increases, which is a great extra label use in my yeah. opinion. I haven't had a chance to use it myself, but um, I hope to one day. <laughs> For, in your patients, right? In my in your patients. patients. Yes, in my patients. Thank <laughs> Got you. it. Okay. Yeah, I, I just wanted to clarify in your patients. Uh, I wonder, awesome. is, it still, is it still blue for, for dogs? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, now they have the generic. Is that still blue? I wonder. The things we don't know about. Yeah, that's great. I luckily haven't treated a megasophagus dog in a really long time, and that disease has always been very frustrating for me. So I'd be interested to try that, if anything, yeah. were better than current therapies. So, you know, other extra-label drug uses can just be ways to administer. Adequan, for instance, is labeled for intramuscular use. But I know that people use it subcutaneously. How about you guys? Yeah, I've used I use it sub-Q. Sub-Q. Yeah. yeah. So somebody asked me the other day, can we give it sub-Q? And I'm like, I know we have, but let me look it up. And I looked it up, and it did say just intramuscular. So, you know, I quickly checked VIN, and everybody 
everybody was using it sub Q2. So I was like, okay. Yeah, I think uh, along those same lines, antecedent is labeled for IM injection, but frequently people use it IV. The anesthesiologists say not to use it IV, though. I can't remember the reason why when I did my internship, our anesthesiologist said, don't use it IV. I had a dog stop breathing, so I used it IV because I was trying to work it out. I have used it IV. In emergencies. You In emergencies, yes. 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 I was doing everything. I even did that little acupuncture point. Trying did to, it work? We got, her, we got her awake again. Okay. I think the antecedent IV was actually what made a difference because I'd given her the dose I am already. And she still, I mean, heart rate was fine and everything, but she just was not breathing. Yeah. Terrifying. Ugh. Well, Amy, you mentioned doxycycline for yeah. lymphocytic, plasmacytic, pododermatitis in cats. Do you want to talk about that one? I actually love doxycycline, period. <laughs> I What's love that, that conversation, has- though, that you have with cat owners about doxycycline? Like, explain that whole process. So there's two conversations. There's, first of all, the conversation that it's an antibiotic that somehow or other that we don't under really understand works as an anti-inflammatory. So that's number one conversation. And also that we're using it for antibiotic properties as well, because there's always some secondary infection involved with any of the pododermatitis. So that's conversation number one. Conversation number two is how careful they have to be about how they use it and the fact that it can cause esophageal issues and um, strictures and ulceration and everything else. And so I'm very careful to explain that to owners, but I have found because once again, in my cat with chronic rhinitis, he's been on doxycycline quite a bit. So I try to make things as easy for people as possible so they can be compliant and so that they're not afraid because if they're afraid to give something, then they're not going to give it. And if you just make something too hard, then they're not going to give it. And they're going to say, oh, it's too hard. So you want to warn people so that they do it properly and so they don't hurt their cat and they don't come back to you and say, you hurt my cat. But you also have to balance that with not making them afraid to use a drug that might really help an uncomfortable patient or a sick patient. So my conversation with doxycycline usually goes like, well, you can use these pills, but then you have to put this water down their throat. And it's really hard to give a cat five mLs of water because they run away and it's all over your house and it's all over their face and it's not in the cat. And I say, or you can use this liquid then you can take the liquid and my favorite actually is to put doxycycline into canned food because I've read a lot about it on VIN and if you can use even a teaspoonful of canned food that counts as your teaspoonful of water and so my favorite is to take it and mix it with canned food and the cats don't even know they had medicine especially if you're using a flavored liquid and putting it in flavored food the other thing I've done that I love but none of the practices that I work at currently have it I had it in my mobile clinic is there's these doxycycline um, chewable tablets that Wedgwood makes Uh, oh I love the quad tabs Mm -hmm. and what I would do with my cat is I would take the quad tab and I'd break it and then I'd crush it easily between two spoons mix it into to his food with Fortiflora. And so between the deliciousness of the Fortiflora <laughs> and the doxycycline in the canned food, he was happy. He would eat every little scrap and I'd actually give him more than that requisite teaspoon. I'd give him usually half of a fancy feast size can of food with it. And I had no worries that he was ever going to develop esophagitis, even though he was on it for a long time. Those are great tips. Great mm-hmm. tips. 
I think it brings up a really good point about the anti-inflammatory slash immunomodulator components of antibiotics, right? And I can think of three off the top of my head. So obviously doxycycline, azithromycin, right, for papillomas in young dogs. That is off-label that I've definitely used and seen success, although people say, was it just time or was it the azithromycin? And then metronidazole, which I always have to explain to people, you know, why am I getting an antibiotic in diarrhea if I don't know if it's a true infection? And I think mostly what I tell people and I write on the label is that, yes, it's an antibiotic, but it's also an anti-inflammatory for the colon. So I think those three antibiotics, am I missing any other antibiotics that you guys use for anti-inflammatory properties? I think amoxy has some anti-inflammatory properties for the bladder. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a good point. So also using NSAIDs, right? I think you had this on the list, um, Mm -hmm. Andrew, paroxicam for certain bladder tumors, right? Which is an NSAID, which is technically off-label use as well. I think there are a lot of off-label uses in chemotherapy for just a lot of different mm-hmm. drugs, just because there's so so many new things coming on the market all the time and they aren't necessarily, they, they haven't been labeled yet, for especially for use in animals. I was gonna say anecdotally, um, my dog had TCC and was also, she also had IBD, so she was on budesonide for that um, and was on galloprant for her arthritis. And when she got diagnosed with her TCC, they gave me six months um, and said, you know, there's no point in switching to paroxicam. The studies haven't been done on galopran, but it's an NSAID, so it might work. And she made it 14 months. Wow. Wow. Amazing. The other thing that I think of that's really big with this is um, all the dogs that have osteosarcoma that don't go to an oncologist or the people can't deal with the idea of an amputation, they can't afford an amputation, whatever it is. And all the ones that over the years that I initially just put on an NSAID and tramadol or gabapentin now or whatever it is, and we thought we were just treating their pain, it turns out that we were extending their life, which was sort of my clinical feeling. And now we know that we are because of the decreased angiogenesis because of the NSAID. So it's really interesting because you can have that conversation with clients about osteosarcoma. I've had dogs live way longer than they're supposed to with osteosarcoma, just like your dog, Chandra, lived longer than she was supposed to with the TCC. That's a great point. And I think probably the last thing we'll talk about, which I think is really important to all of us on this call and most veterinarians now in our fear-free patients, and like, what are our two favorite fear-free drugs? Gapapentin and trazodone. Exactly. And those are both (laughs) off-label, actually for both dogs and cats, I think. I think it's really important to know that we're using this a lot. We're using it like water and it's really helping our patients. And obviously there are very large dose ranges for both of those drugs and not every animal reacts great to them. And so I don't know about everyone's experience here real quick, but mine is obviously I do try to start them out on low doses and have people do trial runs at home, obviously, before they do that. And I think I think that that has helped a lot. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I saw Clinician's Brief has an article called The Chill Protocol that um, even adds in melatonin. Oh, yes. Good point. Oh, cool. So obviously, we are all using gabapentin and trazodone for lots of fear-free, making our patients more comfortable. But Amy knows of another thing to use gabapentin for that's not for pain. 
Well, I've never done it before, but I'm interested to try because I read about it yesterday. Gabapentin actually in people and in dogs has been used as an antitussive. So in people, it is thought that especially in chronic cough, there's some sort of neuropathic um, etiology with chronic cough. So the gabapentin actually helps with that. And also with chronic cough, um, people and animals are painful. And I'm really interested to try it because so many dogs cough at night. And if it allows them to rest better and if it helps with that neuropathic pathway involved in chronic cough I think it could be really great because we all know that we don't see a lot of side effects with it so I'm excited to try that I literally had no idea is it the I same didn't dosing? Until yesterday so I'm excited is it the, same dosing? <laughs> the dosing was higher in people and I don't think we know in dogs I read about it in people and I forget how high it was I think they said they used up to 1800 milligrams per day in people which is very high because I know people that are on gabapentin for neuropathic issues and it's usually 300 milligrams um, up to like three times a day for typical neuropathic pain so 1800 milligrams per day is really high in a person I'm not sure the dose has been elucidated with dogs but I mean I'd be inclined to just start with that 10 megs per cake yeah. and see what happens. Maybe they're not coughing because they're just asleep all day. <laughs> that much. Yeah, but we all know that it's hard to sleep if you have to cough. So yeah. they, it must be helping in some way. So, well, I think there's so many great off label uses out there. And clearly, we're just scratching the surface here. I would tell the audience if they're listening to please email us at clinical at indievets.com and let us know if there are other things that they are using and maybe we can do a round two in the future. I think that we have, a, like I said before, a unique vantage point that we get to see how, you know, we get to meet so many more veterinarians in our line of work than, than most. And so I hope we can continue to bring this kind of information to the audience um, in the future. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Please subscribe and you'll get alerted every time we have a new episode, which we're hoping to be putting out every couple of weeks. And hopefully next time it'll be a true happy hour because Marissa won't be on Whole30 and she'll be having a beer. <laughs> 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 All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.